This episode of the Science of Survival is brought to you by Bomba Socks, and it's the second of two episodes about extreme dehydration, a survival situation which socks are surprisingly capable at helping you overcome. Socks are not only useful as rudimentary filters, but cotton socks can actually soak up enough morning dew that it's possible to suck moisture straight from the fabric. Seriously, it's way better than licking a bunch of leaves. So, if you're like me and there's even a small chance you're going to be putting your socks in your mouth, you'll probably want a sock that's had some thought put into its fabric. Bombas uses long-staple Pima cotton, named for the Pima tribe in Arizona that grew it originally. Long-staple cottons are stronger, softer, and they don't pill as much when you wear them meaning no little balls of cotton on your tongue after taking a life-saving suck from your sock. Bombas. Socks so good, their marketing people have never even asked to see what we're writing about them ahead of time. Save 20% by visiting bombas.com outside and enter outside during checkout. That's B-O-M-B-A-S dot outside. From Outside Magazine and PRX, this is the science of survival. Well, they were, you know, they were men from Veracruz, um, working men, um, just guys, just working men. When they attempted to cross the Mexican border in May 2001, there wasn't anything all that special about the group that would come to be known as the Yuma 14. We're not even totally sure 14 is the right number. We know that they set out into the desert, on foot, and we know that it swallowed them up. Nobody knows. No one knows how many guys started out, and nobody knows what happened to a large number of them who vanished. This is Luis Alberto Urea, author of The Devil's Highway, an account of the UM-14's ill-fated border crossing. Ashet Audio presents The Devil's Highway, a true story, written and read by Luis Alberto Urea. And this is his audiobook. For the dead, and for those who rescue the living. Which is going to help us tell the story. Urea's book takes place in the same stretch of desert that gold prospector Pablo Valencia, who you may remember from our last episode, reportedly traveled for a week without water. Valencia basically came back from the dead, as scientist W.J. McGee observed and took notes. You might also remember from last time that this was a place that brought all manner of Spanish conquistadors, missionaries, and prospectors to their doom. There's been bad mojo along that trail for a very long time. Every few generations, a new group of travelers found the route and perished along it. A few hundred each year when it was in use. More than a thousand over a decade. I will go back to a... a something that indigenous poet Ofelia Cepeda said to me. She said to me, Hail Marys do not work here. You pray to the wrong God to survive this place. Historically, the Devil's Highway was among the deadliest places in North America, but fatalities tapered off at the end of the 19th century when a railroad started taking people around it. It still claimed the odd prospector and desert rat, but these were, for the most part, people who knew what they were getting into. But then in the early 2000s, the route started killing people again. It was suddenly as deadly as it had ever been. No one really knew why. Those of us that had lived in, in Arizona for most of our lives had never 
really witnessed anything like this. So all of a sudden it seemed like we went from less than 10 to uh, nearly 100 deaths. Dr. Sam Keim is the chair of emergency medicine at the University of Arizona in Tucson. And then, you know, my scientific uh, side of my brain started asking, you know, you know, what's going on here? Is this really an increase in the crossings? Is it global climate change? It was basically the same desert in basically the same climate. The only thing that had changed was border enforcement. All the usual spots to cross had been sealed tight. I think the 30-second version of why that clampdown took place would be that there were lots of voters and television cameras in El Paso and in San Diego. This is former Border Patrol agent Francisco Cantu. And, you know, in the 80s, you had these news images of people, you know, literally bum-rushing the port of entry. Um, You had... Uh, you know, people calling the police station because crossers were running through their front lawn. It was called Operation Gatekeeper, and it started in California, moved east. San Diego, Calexico, Yuma, El Paso, Nogales, Douglas, they were all becoming harder to get through. This looked great for the politicians of the cities. Voila, no more Mexicans. But now... Smaller, rougher places were becoming hot spots, and astounding numbers of humans were moving through their deserts. The dangers, the risk to one's life are just, you know, exponentially increased when, um, when crossing through that kind of terrain. Deaths were on the rise. Death by sunlight, hyperthermia was the main culprit. And again, it's important to note that they were you know, it wasn't their plan. They didn't decide to do this. They were, they were kind of coerced and sold a bill of goods. Imagine, you're from a tropical part of Mexico, maybe Guatemala, land of jungles, waterfalls, fruit. You want to start a family, but you'll need your own land, and that's expensive. Coffee prices are way down, and no one's got any work. It's a problem. Then, one day, a man shows up with a solution. Essentially, they have these fellows called hookers, enganchadores. And it's not hooker as in prostitute, but as in fishermen. You know, they, they, they work their hooks. And they are salted around places that have a population that needs work. He says he can get you across the border, get you a job. It's the answer you've been looking for. This far south, no one really talks about the desert, the border, the history of death and the Devil's Highway. He doesn't mention it either. And uh, there was this man named Moses, Moises, known as Don Moy. And Don Moy essentially was a recruiter. And he had a nice car, some gold chains, nice watch. And he would insinuate himself into a community and make his presence known. And he would talk them. into this deal. And the deal was, well, you know, you're having a hard time and we're businessmen and we can get you a really nice seasonal job in Florida, warm, sunny, and all you have to do is pick oranges. The, The rub being that the journey itself was quite expensive. And part of the deal was if you renege on your contract, we come back and take your land. We get, your, we get your little rancho. It's ours. 
Once you're in bed with Don Moy, your only move is to try to cross the desert and pay off your debt. So you go. First an endless bus ride, then a night in a seedy motel in Sonoita, a town that exists just to get people across the border. The next morning, you pile into a van, maybe there's two vans, with at least 25 other people, and drive into the desert. Saturday, May 19th. It's not hard to get yourself across the border. Anyone can do it. This stretch of desert is so remote, there's no fence or wall or barrier at all. You can literally drive across. But your trip would be short. On the other side of the border, the mountains funnel crossers straight towards the border patrol. Instead, you need to hike, and you need to know which combination of mountain trails will keep you off the deportation bus. The deal was that they would be led by a guide, and they would allegedly go down this trail, it was quite well known, called Bluebird Pass, and it'd take two days. Bluebird Pass drops straight down a ridgeline towards Ajo, Arizona. And you would walk into Ajo, get some fresh water from people's spigots, <laughs> and go to a mile marker, and it was coordinated so drivers would come in the night and grab you and whisk you off to Phoenix. And you would go into a house that had an attached garage, so no one saw anything. The vans would just automatically open the door, drive in, and you'd unload directly into the house. It was all very well-oiled machine that had moved a lot of people. But even well-oiled machines break down. The uh, crisis came when they got to Sonoita uh, on the Mexican border. The man who was going to lead them, a young man who went by the name of Maradona, didn't show up. He didn't come to work. Nobody knows what happened to him. So his trainee, who was known as Mendez, a 19-year-old kid from Guadalajara, was learning the ropes and foolishly, perhaps, said, I can do it. And they began walking and they climbed and everything went well. Uh, they got up to the top of the ridgeline and at about 11 o'clock at night, they headed down Bluebird Pass, and then they were lit up with spotlights. Mendez later claimed that the Border Patrol was lurking in the hills, waiting for them to come up to Bluebird Pass. It was an ambush. The spotlights like laser beam attacks in a space movie. The walkers stood like deer for a moment, their eyes bright red, their mouths open. They cursed, they shouted, La Migra! Mendes yelled. The men scrambled into the dark, running, they thought, for their lives. The lights, Mendes insisted, followed them, chased them into the wilds, and once they were running, whoever it was who lit them up killed the lights and drove away. The Border Patrol had captured another group, hiking in front of them, using the same route to cross the border. They probably didn't even know Mendes was there. But he ran, and his group followed him through the pitch black, abandoning water jugs, dropping down on the wrong side of an entire mountain range. And when they regrouped, it started to rain, and they were feeling like, okay, we beat the border patrol, it's cool, it's raining, we're safe. And they headed north to the next path that would have taken them. They abandoned Bluebird, and there was a second one farther north, but they didn't realize they were behind a ridgeline. And as they headed north, that sealed their doom. 
Mendez walked, and the group followed, and they eventually found themselves trapped in a box canyon. That is probably when Mendez realized that they were in really serious trouble. But instead of telling anyone, he had the group rest. They'd move again in the morning, when the sun came up and he could get his bearings, figure out where they were. Which was another tactical error because you do not walk in that heat in the morning. And a heat wave began after the rain passed. And they trudged into the sun. Let's pause here for a moment to explain a term very specific to the Border Patrol that's about to come up a lot. Sign cutting. So cutting for a sign is essentially, you know, looking for sign of someone's passage through the landscape. That's Francisco Cantu again. Cutting for sign is the bread and butter of being a Border Patrol agent. It's named for the process of driving slowly down the long, straight dirt roads that cut through the borderlands, pulling a drag that smooths out the road behind you. All along the way, you look for sign, or tracks, of anyone who crossed the road since the last time you dragged it. Then you follow the tracks like a hunter. That's cutting for sign. How good at sign cutting is it possible to get? Oh, man. I worked with this guy, this old salty dog border patrol agent, and... You know, he was like a sage. I, he he was, you know, like a, a wizard of sign cutting. And those agents can see pebbles out of place. They can see what my supervisory agent called hither-thither, which is a scattering of gravel, which will tell you something passed by. As somebody said to me, uh, they have a PhD in dirt. You know, he could tell if somebody's walking or running. He had his theories about if somebody was old, <laughs> if they were limping, um, you know, if there, were, if there were women or men in the group, um, all sorts of stuff. Sunday, May 20th, 6 a.m. The cutters know many things about a person by the nature of his tracks. Mendez always walked point, taking the lead as if he knew where he was going. The men shuffled and stumbled along behind him, wandering off path and straggling, but generally moving ahead. The sign told them much about each man. One thousand steps, fall, scramble, five hundred steps, lie down on the ground and stare at the sky. One thousand steps, sit, fall over, up on knees, crawl, fall, get up one last time. This guy walked alone the whole time. This guy walked with his brothers. This guy tried to eat a cactus. They didn't know that Mendes was in uncharted territory. He probably knew it, but seemed to think he could work out the puzzle of the landscape. Maybe he thought he was fooling everybody. They didn't know where they were supposed to walk. They'd go where he told them to go. So he marched ahead, striding, with great purpose. Later, the sign cutters read his tracks and called him Asshole. And then it was, you know, it was a series of catastrophes from that moment on. They got worse and worse. And when they headed out into the sun, one of the things that, you know, the trackers, once the sign cutters and the border patrol sort of took me in and showed me stuff, 
you know, they pointed out that you tend to go around objects as you're hiking on the same side. You always veer left or right and you repeat the pattern over and over. And so as they were walking in the heat, veering constantly to the left, growing more and more delirious, they cut a huge U-turn and walked back to the Mexican border without knowing it. Asshole, idiot, murderer. It's hard to say. But Mendez lacked even basic navigational skills. Uh, you know, I doubt that he even comprehended what it would mean to just watch which direction the sun was going, you know, and head west or east following that trajectory. They were walking in an ocean of sand and heat and bright, awful nothingness. They could have walked indefinitely, tracing the same forever circle in 120-degree sand. At one point, part of the group split off and tried to follow their tracks back to Mexico. No trace of them was ever found. Eventually, Mendez gathered the group, collected their money, told them to stay put. He said he would get a car and come back for them. But by that point, he had said a lot of things. And everyone could tell that death was beginning to catch up with the group. Mendez was, was, who knows? You know, his testimony says that he was trying to save their lives. Who knows? But, uh, you know, the, the heat and the sun got to him before he ever got to Interstate 8. And his partner died and he was found in a coma later by sign cutters. Monday, May 21st. They agreed to stick together and walk north, all of them. It had to be north. Mendez had gone north, the bastard, and he was saving himself. They'd follow Mendez. Now the illegals were cutting for sign. They walked. They walked. There was no other story. They walked. Gasping. That was the sound gasping and sobbing and coughing and heartbeats canta y no llores stop to piss piss in cupped hands lick every hot smear of it from your fingers sacrament communion oh god in thy dwelling place hear our pleas blessed mary mother of god pray for us sinners now in the hour of our death amen El tuca 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 naso, wings above them, blue man, white teeth, nothing, empty nothing, empty bones, empty heat, nothing but sun, empty nothing. They did think to light some bushes, thinking that that would cause a bonfire, but of course in the vastness of that desert um, and blocked by mountain ranges and so forth, no one saw it. Tuesday, May 22nd. By mid-morning, it was 100 degrees. By noon, 105. By 2 o'clock, it was 108 degrees. They walked. Somehow, it became the next day. Wednesday, May 23rd. This agent, Dave Fagan was patrolling. Five men stumbled out of the mountain pass so sunstruck they didn't know their own names. 
couldn't remember where they'd come from, had forgotten how long they'd been lost. They were burned nearly black, their lips huge and cracking, what paltry drool still available to them spuming from their mouths in a salty foam as they walked. Their hair was hard and stiffened by old sweat standing in crowns from their scalps, old sweat because their bodies were no longer sweating. They were seeing God and devils, and they were dizzy from drinking their own urine, the poisons clogging their systems. They were beyond... But they, they kept telling them this outrageous story that they're dead. They're all dead. They're all behind us. There's, there's 20, there's 30, there's 70. He didn't know what was going on. He got on the radio and called Station, which was Welton Station. And when they realized, I think, the, the epic nature of what may have been happening out there, he called a bonsai run, which is essentially everybody. Drop everything, get there. So everything was heading out there to where Agent Fagan was. They were water trucks, they called buffaloes. They were going out there, jeeps, everything. And, uh, you know, Fagan backtracked. He started walking in by himself before everybody got there to try to find them. And he, he started finding bodies. They eventually found 14 bodies. It was the single largest mortality event on the border, ever. At least 26 people went into the desert. 12 survived. But no one knows how many people were even out there to start with. Some survivors said 70. And these deaths were a tragedy, but they were also a kind of symptom. Which brings us back to Dr. Sam Kine. You know, one of the interesting things for me was actually the challenge of trying to describe... Uh, scientifically, you know, what was going on with this uh, disease, if you, if you will. Uh, In part one of the story, we told you about Pablo Valencia, who came about as close to the edge of death as it's possible to come. And W.J. McGee, the scientist who observed and described what dehydration did to the body. That paper then became a key tool in understanding the process of dying of thirst, which is now pretty well described on an individual level. But here, we have a scientist trying to observe and describe dehydration on a larger scale. Kaim wanted to know just how deadly this modern incarnation of the Devil's Highway really was. And when he started to look at the data, he found that it wasn't random. It wasn't just bad luck or a bad guide now and then. Kaim realized that he could predict the probability of heat death in Pima County, which contains a majority of the Devil's Highway, using nothing but the day's high temperature. Surprisingly, nothing else seemed to matter. He called it the death index. So the bottom line, I guess the take-home message is that, you know, on days in southern Arizona along the border when the temperature reaches 104 degrees, uh, we can almost be uh, assured, unfortunately, that at least one border crosser will be dying. And nearly regardless of the volume of border crossers uh, that are coming uh, into the United States. And we revalidated that prediction model in multiple different years, and uh, it was... Uh, uh, extremely consistent every single year. That is, given all the factors in play, from border policies to idiot coyotes leading crossers in a massive circle, Kime determined that at 104 degrees, there was a 50-50 chance of the Devil's Highway claiming a life. Any life. As you might expect, the hotter it was, the more deadly it was. Preventing deaths, then, should have been just a simple matter of communicating that fact to people along the border. And that's what Kime tried to do. 
We had a custom corrido written. A corrido is a Mexican folk song. You'll still hear it on the radio, all along the border, when the temperature gets above 100 degrees. The verses describe the dangers of heat stroke, how the coyotes mistreat and abandon their clients. Again, these are migrants who may come from a place so far south that none of this is common knowledge. The song was meant to educate crossers. But there was a piece of the data that showed education might not be enough. We've never seen a day where we didn't have a heat death uh, when the temperature is, is extremely high, say 113, 114. Essentially, there was no such thing as a day too hot to cross. So Kaim did another study, interviewing border crossers in halfway houses after they had been apprehended. And what we found was that these people had extremely high motivations to cross. They were doing it for their families. They were desperate. So they were basically willing to cross at all, uh, at all odds, at all risk. Which makes sense when you consider that these are guys with their farms signed away to the coyotes. Their livelihoods, if not their lives, were on the line no matter what the temperature was. It was a survival situation even before they stepped out of the vans. And as a border patrol, you handle that population differently. You know, the agents, using their own money, uh, essentially designed these life-saving towers and started putting them up in some of the most traveled areas that had a panic button. People could actually find these towers, see them from a long way off. They had reflectors up on top that shone almost like a signal mirror. Miles, you could see them. And they could get there, and it had signs in Spanish saying, you know, you have this many hours to the highway, you will die. You know, you have this many hours to water, you will die if you don't get help. Push the button, and we promise you we'll be here as fast as possible. Over the next few months, the Border Patrol in Yuma Sector, where the Yuma 14 had crossed, established camps out in the desert and staffed them with agents who'd been medically trained. They put up towers. They made Hail Marys an option. In the year after the Yuma 14 wandered into the desert, hundreds of migrants died in Tucson Sector. In Yuma Sector, there were only nine deaths. But that's not quite the end of the story. Now, interestingly, as a footnote to all this, after the deaths and after the catastrophe, Moses went back and he told the widows, I'm taking all of your land. I'm taking your homes. It's all mine. And the widows went to men in surrounding villages who lay in wait for him. And when he came back on the appointed day, they lit into him and his goons with axe handles and hoes and machetes and God knows what else and chased them out. In other words, after losing husbands and fathers to the Devil's Highway, which had claimed so many thousands of lives, these few families got their moment with the man most directly responsible for what happened. And and they didn't kill Moses. It was... It was uh, no, no, no. They just, just beat him. Beat him. Okay. They beat his ass and chased him out. And so he, he, never, he never came back. You might say they stood toe-to-toe with the Devil himself. They told him to hit the road.
A very big thanks to Luis Urea for talking with us for this piece. His book is just about as good as books get. The audio version, which Ashet generously let us use for this piece, can be found wherever books are sold online and in your local bookstore. Francisco Cantu, the former Border Patrol agent we heard from earlier, writes thoughtful, haunting essays about the border. His piece, Bajadas, was just picked for next year's Best American Essays. The Science of Survival is produced by me, Peter Frickwright, and Robbie Carver. Jonathan Hirsch did our music. This season of The Science of Survival is supported by the Alfred P. Sloan Foundation, enhancing public understanding of science, technology, and economic performance. More at sloan.org. The Outside Podcast is a production of Outside Magazine and PRX. We are taking a break for a few weeks, while Robbie becomes a father, and I go to South America for a story about problems at altitude. Keep listening, and I'm sure you'll eventually hear about both of those things right here on the podcast. <laughs>